Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here uh, with you all. As always, just a blessing for the church family to gather together um, and to praise Him and to worship Him and now to spend some time just getting into His Word. So today we're going to pick up where we last left off in our study of Luke's Gospel. Last week we began, began chapter 12 looking at a message that I entitled, Beware of Hypocrisy. And if you were with us last week, you may recall how I stated that most of chapter 12 is a series of warnings that Jesus gave to his disciples as a way to forewarn them of the dangers that were to come. And these warnings, they come on the heels of Jesus being uh, vehemently assailed by the religious elite and now uh, completely surrounded by an innumerable multitude of people. Jesus' popularity among the masses was at an all-time high, while at the same time, the animosity and the hatred that he received from the religious elite was already boiling over in in ever-increasing hostility. The disciples were in great danger and in danger of falling prey to either of these two groups. Uh, There was a a temptation to perhaps shirk back from their faith and their walk with Jesus amongst the religious elite in an attempt to avoid persecution and the attacks of the religious powers that be. While at the same time, there was a temptation to assume too much in seeking after the fame and the popularity that was offered by the masses. And so Jesus takes this time to warn his disciples of the dangers that lurk around each corner, desiring to bring them to ruin. In the first 12 verses, the emphasis was upon hypocrisy, pretending to be something that you are not. Uh, we talked about how it was borrowed from the theater and from drama. It's, it's putting on a mask and acting a part. Uh, but in our text this morning, the subject matter is going to change. Jesus moves on from hypocrisy and he tackles another sin that could have just as devastating of an impact upon their walk. And the sin that Jesus speaks of is one that we've all heard about. It's actually involved in uh, one of the Ten Commandments. So if you know your Ten Commandments, you'll know this one. Uh, But it isn't a sin that really gets a whole lot of attention, to be honest with you. Um, I rarely have had anyone come to me Uh, for counseling and and confess that they were struggling with this particular sin. And yet, it is a sin that really is the root of all sorts of other sinful actions. This particular sin, it feeds into other sins like stealing, like adultery, like uh, idolatry, and a whole host of others. And yet, we don't really concern ourselves too much with this sin. We don't think it's that big of a deal Uh, We don't give it a whole lot of attention when it comes to our own spiritual discipline. Now, the sin that I'm talking about is um, covetousness. Um, I've never sat down across from someone and had them confess the sin of covetousness and said, you know, Pastor, I'm really struggling right now. Uh, Can you pray for me? Because I'm struggling with covetousness. That's just never happened. Um, But when you think about it, covetousness is at the root of so many other sins. People get involved in in adulterous relationships, often because of covetousness. People get uh, caught up in idolatry, often because of covetousness. People get caught up in materialism and the things of this world because they are seeking for satisfaction and contentment in things 
Well, that will never bring satisfaction and contentment. And all of this is rooted in the sin of covetousness. As we get into our text this morning, Jesus is going to have a very strong warning for his disciples about the sin of covetousness. And it's a warning that we need to pay particularly close attention to as well, so that we don't fall into the temptation of succumbing to this deadly and powerful sin. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And the title of our message as we continue on this series of warnings given by Jesus is Beware of Covetousness. Okay, Beware of Covetousness. I'd like to request that you all rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read our text in its entirety. I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, do your best to follow along. Okay, Luke writes the following in chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. The opportunity that we have to gather here and open up your word and open up our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears to just all that you want to say and do in and through us this morning. Lord, I I know it's a a, a special weekend of remembrance, Lord, remembering those who've fallen, those who've given uh, their lives uh, in uh, sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy. I do pray that you would just be with those who just may be heavy-hearted this weekend. Um, Lord, we do thank you for your life that was sacrificed for us, Lord. Uh, You gave your life that we might have life in you. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, for your sacrifice. And we pray that you would uh, just minister to our hearts as we gather here uh, this morning. May you be glorified in all that we say and do. We give you this time of study and we invite your spirit just to lead and guide us into all truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, our text this morning is not very long, okay? only nine verses. We did end a little early for service, no guarantees though, uh, for second service. Okay, But there's only nine verses, It's and a simple reading of our text shows that it can easily be divided into three parts for those of you who like to take notes or maybe outline our text. I've divided it up into three. Uh, the first part deals with a predicament regarding covetousness, and that's in verses 13 through 15, okay, a predicament regarding covetousness. Then the second part of our text highlights for us a parable about covetousness uh, in verses 16 through 20. 
And then the third and final part concludes Jesus' warning on the matter with him presenting really what amounts to the product of covetousness. Uh, what comes as a result of, of covetousness? And that's in verse 21. So let's dive right in. We're going to take a look at our first verse where we're introduced to a predicament regarding covetousness. Read with me verse 13 again. It says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Recall from our text uh, last week, if you were here with us, that Jesus and his disciples, they are completely surrounded by an innumerable multitude that numbered in the tens of thousands of people. Verse 1 of chapter 12 described the multitude as trampling over one another. And so we get this idea that people are, are pushing and, and shoving and doing whatever feasibly possible to gain an audience with Jesus. And it's getting pretty rough. And from the midst of the crowd that's trampling over one another comes the shout of one particular man who had an issue that he wanted Jesus to deal with, a problem of sorts, a predicament that he was hoping Jesus could settle for him. Now, this is actually something that was somewhat normal and, and typical for people to do during that day and age. If you had an issue that you couldn't settle between someone, you oftentimes could go together to your local rabbi and you could present the case to him and ask him to help you come to a settlement or an agreement of sorts. And so this is something the early church was actually encouraged to do as well. If you're familiar with Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, uh, Paul actually rebuked the Corinthian church for not having someone within their church to help with these sorts of situations. He wrote, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? You see, instead of taking their issues to other believers and having a mature brother help them solve their issues, they were actually taking one another to the public courts and they were suing one another. And, uh, and it was a bad look upon the church that they couldn't take care of their own problems. And instead, they started out airing out all their dirty laundry to the world. Since Jesus was seen as a teacher, he's a traveling rabbi, this wouldn't necessarily be considered an odd request for him to judge between these two brothers and help them come to an agreement of sorts. What the man shouted is interesting. He called out to Jesus saying, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It would seem that this man was in some sort of predicament with his brother, presumably his older brother, who hadn't divided up and distributed the inheritance in a manner which was agreeable to him. Now, the scriptures actually were quite clear when it came to how an inheritance was to be distributed amongst heirs. Uh, the firstborn son was to receive a double portion of the inheritance, while the rest of the inheritance would be evenly distributed amongst the rest of the sons. And so if, uh, for instance, there were two sons, then the inheritance would be portioned into three parts. The older brother would receive two-thirds, a double portion, and the, old, the other son would receive the leftover, which equated to one-third of the inheritance. Okay, this was actually established and set within uh, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21. It's alluded to the double portion for the firstborn. Well, we aren't given the specifics of this particular situation. Maybe this man's brother wasn't distributing any of the inheritance and instead was keeping it all to himself. Or 
Maybe this man didn't like the portion that he was given. Maybe he felt like he wasn't getting his fair share of what he felt he had coming to him. We really can't say because we aren't given enough information here as to the particulars of the case. Nonetheless, we do know that at the root of this predicament is an issue regarding covetousness. For Jesus is going to use this man's calling out to him to address the sin of covetousness. Whatever the particulars of the case, at the root of the problem was a problem with covetousness. Now the word covetousness is a compound word in the Greek. It's the word pleonexia. Uh, pleon means more and echo means to have. And so putting them together, we come to understand that covetousness has to do with wanting to have more, not being satisfied with what you have, but having a desire for more, a a strong uh, appetite for more than what you've been given. This man was not satisfied with the situation that he was in. He was not satisfied with how his brother was handling their inheritance and he wanted more. And so he shouts out above the noise of the crowd, tells Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance. Now, interestingly enough, the word tell here in the Greek is written in the imperative mood, which typically speaks of a command or an exhortation. This man is not asking Jesus to do something. He is telling Jesus what to do. And this is problematic, you guys. Whenever we start acting like we're the boss and we start making demands of Jesus, we know we're heading in the wrong direction. We know we're headed for danger. You see, Jesus is Lord, not us. Okay? We don't tell him what to do. We do what he tells us to do. And when we start making demands of the Lord, it's usually an indication that we are struggling with some sort of covetousness. We are not satisfied with how things are going, and we start to demand of the Lord to do more. When we start making demands of God, we are showing a lack of faith in the Lord and his ways. We are indicating a heart that thinks that we know better than the Lord and that we need to tell him what to do. We are putting ourselves above the Lord. And that is the problem with covetousness. It leads to so many other sins. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments, right, is you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. But that is exactly what we're doing when we start telling God what he needs to do. We are putting ourselves before the Lord. We're saying we know better than him that he needs us to do his job for him, okay? God, this is what you need to do. I already know what needs to be done. Just get to it and make it happen, right? Do it this way. We make ourselves out to be our own God. The captains of our own ships that know the direction we need to go in and we basically just need Jesus to get on board and get in the boat and make it happen. God help us. Whenever we start acting like we're the boss and we know best and we start telling God what he needs to do or what he needs to not do. Protect us, you know, protect us, Lord, from such foolishness and from our own sinfulness, okay? What a danger we run into. Let's look at Jesus' response to this man in this predicament. Verse 14, it says, But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? 
We'll pause right here. This is an interesting response from Jesus. Jesus responds to this man uh, with a question. That's not uh, peculiar. He always responded with questions oftentimes. But the response seems to indicate that he isn't interested at all in helping this man and his brother regarding their predicament. When Jesus asks, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over God? We may think that the answer to the question is, well, God. (laughs) Because we do know that in the Gospel of John, Jesus states, for the Father judges no one, but is committed all judgment to the Son. In John chapter 5, verse 22. A few verses later in John 5, 27, it says how the Father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus states on the, at the onset of the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In the book of Acts, Paul asserted to those gathered together at the Areopagus there in Athens how God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul, of course, was referencing Jesus as the one whom God had ordained and had risen from the dead. Even Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 5, how man will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Make no doubt about it. The scriptures are clear and they teach us that judgment and the authority to judge have been given to Jesus by the Father. But, but, The wording in all of those verses is different from the wording that's used here in Luke. Jesus used the word dikastese. Dikastese, yeah, when he used said judge. And the word meristese for arbitrator. Okay, the particular word for judge is a very specific word in the Greek that speaks of one who is nominated or elected to become part of a tribunal, and to arrive at a conclusion concerning a person or case. It's actually used two other times in the New Testament. Though the word judge is used often, uh, this particular Greek word is only used two other times. And it's both in Acts chapter 7, during Stephen's address to the high priest when speaking about Moses. Maybe you're familiar with that portion of Scripture. Stephen was recounting the acts of Moses, how he tried to intercede on behalf of the Jews and help them out. He confronted two men who were fighting and told them to stop. But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him, referring to Moses away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us in Acts 7.27? Stephen continued later on recounting this. He said, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Okay, all three times this word judge is used, it is speaking specifically of someone who's been elected to a temporary position to help decide a particular case. The word for arbitrator is actually only used here in Luke's gospel. It's never used again in the rest of scripture. This one and only time is the only time arbitrator is ever used. And it simply refers to someone who is a divider of an inheritance, a very specific reference towards one assigned to settle disputes when it comes to the division of assets within an inheritance. 
And so while Jesus has been given all authority to judge the living and the dead by the Father, Jesus' judgment is a judgment pertaining to righteousness, okay? Something far more significant than an inheritance. And I believe that's kind of the point that Jesus is making here. Jesus is far more concerned with this man's righteousness and his standing before the Father than he is about whether or not he's getting a fair share of an earthly inheritance. Jesus is trying to realign this man's focus from the temporal earthly matters and direct his attention towards weightier important matters that have to do with eternity. This man and his brother have bigger problems than dividing out their inheritance. They both are actually struggling with covetousness. We can tell that from the wording again. Okay, we know that this pertains to both brothers because when Jesus said, who made me judge or an arbitrator over you? Okay, the word you is actually in the second uh, person plural form. Okay, meaning Jesus was saying, who made me judge or, or arbitrator over you too or you all or y'all or however some of you guys say it, you know, from Texas, right? Maybe Jesus knew that any answer he would have given would not have solved the problem within each of them. They had too much greed within them. Okay? They had this greedy desire for more. Neither of them would be happy with any sort of settlement because their hearts were filled with covetousness. Now, after responding to the man individually, Jesus turned his attention toward those who were around him and he gave a stern warning in verse 15. Let's read it. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Jesus didn't just say take heed or just beware, okay, like he did last week. He said beware of hypocrisy. Here he says take heed and beware of covetousness. Take heed, it speaks of paying attention, uh, seeing to something. Jesus speaks it as a command. It was very important that they pay very close attention and take great caution when it came to covetousness. Beware, it speaks of restraining oneself or guarding against something. And so they were to watch very carefully, to pay close attention, guarding against any form of of covetousness. And I say any form of covetousness because covetousness doesn't only have to do with material possessions. In many of the other modern translations, verse 15 reads actually, be on your guard against all kinds of greed or all forms of greed. You know, the 10th commandment makes it clear that covetousness isn't just about material goods. Because in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, where the 10th and final commandment is given to us, the Lord declares, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You see, you can covet more than just material goods like a house or like an inheritance. You can covet after people, after relationships, to look for satisfaction and fulfillment in a person or in a relationship that you don't have. Oh, you know, my life would just be so much better if I was just married to so-and-so, whatever that may be, okay? You can covet a life of ease and having servants to help serve you. Oh, how much easier life would be if I just had a maid to help clean this place up or 
you know, I just had a nanny to help watch the kids or an assistant to help take off the load I'm under. Life would be so much better when I get some extra help around me, right? You can covet after power and position. If I could just get that promotion, you know, I'd be set. You could covet after fame and influence. Anything that we don't have but think will bring us satisfaction or contentment if we did have it can be something we covet. And if we're looking to people to satisfy our lives or position or power or fame or fortune or anything other than the Lord, we will never find what we are looking for. Satisfaction, church family, doesn't come through people or possessions or power or position or prominence. Satisfaction comes from the Lord and Him only. Psalm 107 verse 9 states how the Lord satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, he writes, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. You see, covetousness, it can take on many forms and lead us into a whole lot of other sins. And so we need to watch out. We need to be careful. We need to be on guard. Jesus tells us specifically why we need to take heed and beware in the rest of verse 15. He says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Obviously, Jesus is focusing in upon the aspect of material possessions here as it pertains to these brothers disputing over their inheritance and their particular form of covetousness. And the statement that he makes is very uh, simple. Life is so much more than the gathering of things and possessions. You know, I uh, remember growing up as a kid in the 80s. And I know that this won't relate to most of you, okay? But just humor me here, okay? Back in the 80s, there was um, a prominent saying that you can find on a lot of like bumper stickers or license plate frames, even like t-shirts. It was actually a a saying that's attributed to Malcolm Forbes, an American business leader, the owner publisher of Forbes magazine. You guys have probably heard of Forbes magazine, right? It stated this. This is what it said. My dad actually had this license plate uh, cover. Okay, He who dies with the most toys wins. Anybody ever hear that before? Hear that phrase? Okay, a couple of you. All right, you guys are dating yourselves too. Okay, all right. Yeah, people were constantly, you know, trying to keep up with another, one another. It was as if it was this competition, right? Whoever dies with the most toys wins. And I remember growing up as a kid, there was just this craze. Everybody wanted to have the, all these toys, right? It's like you're going to have uh, dirt bikes, and you got, you got your motorcycles, and you got your dune buggies, and you've got your quads, your ATCs, and then it was like you got to have a boat, and you got to have a jet ski, and you got to have a fancy car, and you got, it's like you just had to have all these things. And the bigger your trailer was behind your truck was like, woohoo, I'm winning, right? 
And while we may not see that phrase used much nowadays, the lifestyle it created is alive and well. People today are still trying to keep up with the Joneses and base their status upon the things they own and upon keeping up with everyone else. You know, I've got the latest iPhone, right? Or the latest TV. I I had to look this up because I wasn't sure. They have 8K TVs now, right? It's like... Wow, that's amazing, okay? So you got to have the latest TVs, the newest gaming console, you know, the latest kitchen appliance you've just got to have, right? Right? It's like, I remember it's like, oh, you got to have an Instant Pot, right? And then it was like, no, 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 you got to have an air fryer, right? And then it's like, no, no, you got to have this. There's always something newer and better and greater and we just got to have it, right? It's still alive and well today, you guys. Keeping up with the Joneses and pursuing all these things. But life is so much more than the pursuit of material possessions. The man who dies with the most toys, you guys, he still dies. Okay, And he doesn't get to take any of his toys with him. First Timothy states, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Job states, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you guys, therein lies the key. Job was satisfied with whatever the Lord gave to him. He was content with whatever God had planned. He blessed the Lord when God gave, and he blessed the Lord when God took away. And the emphasis was always upon the Lord, the provider, and not upon the actual provision. Okay, Paul wrote, I have learned... And whatever state I am, to be content, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, whether Paul had a lot or whether Paul had a little, it didn't change his perspective. He learned to simply trust in the Lord and his provisions. When Paul needed more, God provided more. When he didn't have need, God wouldn't provide. Sometimes God would even strip him of certain things to show him that he didn't have need of them. And God may do the same in our lives as well. Stripping us of things that perhaps we were putting too much stock in, things that maybe we were putting too much hope in, God will sometimes remove those things to show us that what we really need is him. No matter what, Paul was content with whatever God provided. Again, the emphasis is upon the provider, not the provision. And we need to learn to be the same. We need to learn that lesson, you guys. Paul wrote to Timothy stating, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Living for the Lord, leading a life of godliness should be what we long for, not material possessions that will not last. Well, to reinforce this warning, Jesus shares a parable about covetousness in verses 16 through 20. So follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read the entire parable as a whole. And then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Here we have a, a parable about covetousness. And remember that a simple way to think about a parable is to understand that a parable is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. The key to understanding the heavenly truth is found in understanding the earthly story. And so let's take just a few minutes to break this earthly story down, identify the key components. It begins by telling us about the ground of a certain rich man. And so right off the bat, we know this man is already rich. He has an abundance of wealth. The word ground, it doesn't just mean an any old plot of land, as if to suggest, you know, this was a small garden in his backyard. Okay, the word here speaks of a vast countryside. Okay, this man had fields of crops. This word was used to speak of fields along an open countryside that were sown and tilled and harvested. And so this is an extremely well-to-do landowner that we are talking about in his fields. And we're told that his fields yielded plentifully. The idea is that his fields produced a bumper crop, you know, one year. Okay? Far and above what he normally would receive from his crops. An overwhelming abundance. Okay? And so the man thought to himself what he should do. He didn't have enough room in his barns, plural, okay, to store all the excess that came in. And this man presumably made his living off of his fields, and he had multiple barns that had been plenty for him to live a life of great wealth. He was, in fact, a rich man already, okay? But even his multiple barns weren't enough to store all that came to him one particular year. And so he came to the decision that he would tear down his barns and build greater barns able to hold even more of his crops and his goods. And then after building these greater, bigger barns, he would just sit back, relax, and live a life of ease and pursue the pleasures of this world, okay, to eat, drink, and be merry. From this man's own words, we begin to see what the problem is here. You see, in the span of just three verses, in 17, 18, and 19, in the New King James Version, at least, okay, the personal first person pronoun I and the present first person possessive pronoun my are used 10 times in three verses. Okay, look at it. Okay, He says, and he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You see, this man was only concerned about himself and taking care of numero uno, there's no mention of gratitude or thanks given to the Lord for this bumper crop. There's no thought of giving you know, a tithe to the Lord or an offering to the Lord. There's no thought of perhaps sharing his blessings or perhaps giving out of his excess to help those in need. No, it is all about me, myself, and I and setting himself up for a life of ease and never having to worry about anything ever again. I'm set 
was his mindset. You know, I have need of nothing else. I am good to go. But in the parable, after the rich man made up his mind and decided to tear down his barns so he could build bigger and better barns, God revealed himself to him, spoke to him saying, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Despite this man's plans for what he viewed as a wonderful future life of ease, he had made a critical error of not planning for his eternal future. He was only living for the temporal, living and planning and pouring his efforts into things that would not last. He made absolutely no eternal investments with his life. He had spoken to himself saying, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But he failed to consider that his soul would be required by the Lord. The word soul in the Greek is the word uh, suke. Uh, It speaks of life and breath. God, when he created man, he breathed life into him, giving to him the gift of life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 states, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, in the Septuagint, the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, that breath is the same word here. And it tells us that man became a living being. God was recalling that life, bringing it forth and requiring a judgment and an assessment of what that man did with his gift of life. The man thought his life was set, that he had nothing to worry about, but that was not the truth. In fact, it couldn't have been further away from the truth. He had never made any eternal investments, never did anything to acknowledge the Lord or honor the Lord with his life, And he was now going to have to give an account before the Lord. Everything this man built his life upon, everything he poured himself into was all for naught. It meant nothing. Those bumper crops that he was going to store up for his future, they were going to go to someone else. Those things he put so much faith and effort into would do nothing for him in the end. He never took the time to consider the Lord and all his planning and the frailty of his very own life. And so how does this parable apply to us? What is the heavenly truth this early story is trying to convey to us? Well, I think it's quite clear, okay? We're not to be like this man, okay, that only lived for the here and now. We need to invest in the eternal with what God gives us today. James actually shares a similar account in his epistle, stating this in James chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you're... Now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, James says. James speaks of a, of a man who boasts about, of a group of men that boast about their future plans to make a buck, okay, and how they failed to consider the fact that their life on earth is so short. They failed to understand that brevity of life and the need to consider the Lord and the eternal. Such boasting about things you have absolutely no control over is foolishness, and James calls it evil. Now, I want you guys to realize something. I understand something very important here, okay? James and the Lord are not condemning planning 
for the future or having hopes and dreams and aspirations. Okay, It's okay to, to do those things, to have those things, as long as we're still placing the Lord at the center of those hopes and those dreams and those aspirations and those future plans. If God has blessed you with riches, which, okay, let's just be honest here, you guys. In comparison to the rest of this world's population, we are all extremely wealthy. Okay, some of you guys may make more money than me. I might make more, more money than some of you. But if you look at what all of us make here, okay, compared to the rest of the world, we're living high on the hog, okay? We're doing really well for ourselves. I looked it up, okay? Over half the world's population has assets valuing less than $10,000 to their name. They took everything that they owned, every type of possession, they sold it all off, okay? And took all of their assets, all of their savings, any, anything they had, and total it all up. Oh, 55% of the world's population is under $10,000, okay? I think most of us, or most of you probably have that much in your TSP, okay? Or your retirement or your savings account, right? So I'm going to change the wording here. Not if God has blessed you with riches, but since God. Since God has blessed you with riches, you have a responsibility to the Lord to be a good steward of his resources. Paul gave to Timothy some wonderful counsel for him to share with those who are rich, and this applies to us. Too many times we read 1 Timothy 6 and say, oh, that doesn't apply to us. I'm not rich. Yes, you are. Okay. This is what... Paul gave to Timothy, he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. You see, we're not to trust in our riches, but in the Lord. Okay? And we are to use those riches to not only enjoy life, okay, that's okay, enjoy life, okay, that's good, okay, but also help others, do good, give, share, focus upon investing in those things that are eternal. That's the emphasis, that's the focus. It's okay to have those things as long as those things don't have you, okay? Let's wrap this study up looking at our final verse that highlights for us the product of covetousness. What kind of results of this? Verse 21, in conclusion, Jesus said, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus lets us know what becomes a person that's led by covetousness. They will end up just like the man in the parable. Okay? They will prove themselves to be a fool by only focusing upon the temporal and laying up treasures for themselves without ever considering the Lord and the eternal. Again, I take us back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It states, but those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and, in, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, covetousness is a sin that leads to all sorts of other foolish and harmful things, things that can have an eternal impact upon our soul. We must heed Jesus' warning here. We need to take heed and beware of covetousness because it is something that will lead us into all sorts of terrible sins, all because we're not content with what God has provided. 
We are not satisfied with God's provision, and so we seek after something God never intended for us to have. You know, you guys, I believe the promise of Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 states, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Anybody else here believe in that promise of Philippians 4, 19? I hope you do, okay? Listen up. If we need it, God will provide it, okay? If we don't need it, God won't provide it. (laughs) There's a certain peace that comes with living with that kind of mentality, You know, I trust that if God wants me to have something or to invest in something, that he will provide the means and the opportunity to do so. If God doesn't provide the means or opportunity, then obviously that's something God doesn't want me investing his resources in. It's so simple. It's all part of just being a good steward of God's resources and properly investing in the things that he wants us to invest in. Jesus speaks of being rich towards God. We need to be rich towards God, laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel. I'll end with this in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Listen, we're not to lay up treasures here on earth, you guys. We're to lay up our treasures in heaven. Because where our treasures are, there our hearts will be also. And you guys, you know what? It's so important that we understand God wants our hearts. That's why he wants our treasures to be in heaven. And we're going to talk about this more next week, Lord willing, this idea of laying up treasures in heaven, okay? Because we're going to continue. God's going to give, Jesus is going to give another warning, okay? I'll give you a little sneak peek. It's about worry. It's about being anxious for things. And God's going to tell him, don't worry about those things, okay? Beware of that type of living. He's going to talk about investing more into the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to get into that next week. But for us, you guys, we're reminded here, beware of covetousness, okay? It leads into all sorts of other sins that'll cause all sorts of harm to your life. Don't allow yourself to get caught up in it. Lay up your treasures in heaven and where your heart will be also. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to just go through it this morning, Lord, to allow you to lead us and guide us. And Lord, last week, this week, we're, we're talking about these warnings uh, that you gave, a series of warnings, Lord. And um, Lord, we want to be open, you know, to uh, searching our own hearts, that we aren't um, involved in any of these types of, of sins, that we're taking heed and, and being aware and being cautious of these uh, temptations uh, to towards hypocrisy, as we talked about last week, towards covetousness, as we talked about this week. Lord, I know um, we often don't think about covetousness as that big of a deal, but Lord, give us eyes to see the, the pain and, the, and uh, the impact that it has upon us, Lord, how it can easily just lead us away from you and lead us into all sorts of other troubles, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be content with what you've given to us, 
Lord, that we would trust in the promise of Philippians 4.19. Lord, you will give us, uh, provide for us all of our need. Uh, And so if we need it, you're going to provide it. Lord, if we don't need it, you're not going to provide it. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to trust in your provision and lean not uh, in just desiring um, fulfillment and satisfaction in things that we don't have. So Lord, give us eyes that are focused upon you. Uh, May our heart's desire be you and you alone. And may you continue to provide uh, for our needs and for our wants. Lord, may we use what you give to enjoy life, but also to invest in the eternal, to do good, to love others uh, with what you've given to us. And so, Lord, uh, lead us and guide us in this manner, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.